Good morning, everybody. Great to see you today. So as Tom said, Easter is just two weeks away. It seems like that uh, comes fast when you turn the calendar and you're like, wow, it's here. And this, we are gearing up for the biggest outreach weekend of the year here at Lake City, and that's why the special emphasis on prayer that's going on right now. And this weekend is sort of the climax of our Easter prayer with the concert of prayer at 1245 today in the gym, and then five more hours of corporate prayer on Monday, when, uh, Monday Tuesday, and Wednesday. And so this morning I want to talk to you about prayer. I want to encourage you a little bit about prayer. Uh, I want to warn you, don't expect anything too revolutionary, um, but we want to remind you of some beautiful truths that Jesus spoke to us about prayer in one of his most famous teachings on the subject. And I love how this passage really brings to life who God is and what a privilege this thing called prayer really is. So here we go, our Lord's teaching on prayer in John, or excuse me, in Luke chapter 11. So please grab your Bible if you haven't already. And join me in Luke 11. Please find your sermon notes either in your bulletin or on your church app and uh, get those downloaded or out to help follow along as well. Luke 11 begins with these words. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. It's nearly impossible to imagine what it would have been like to sort of walk and talk with Jesus as he made his way around ancient Israel. If we could have been there, we would have seen him touch the sick and make them whole. We would have been amazed as he walked across the the waves of the stormy Sea of Galilee and stilled them. We surely would have been inspired to hear him teach and then would have been mesmerized as he explained the meanings of his teachings in our inner circle. Imagine what it would have been like had you been there and you could have asked whatever question came to mind and got an answer from the Lord himself. But when the disciples saw Jesus perform miracles and teach, they didn't ask him, Lord, teach us to teach like you did. They didn't say, Lord, teach us to do that particular miracle. Instead, what captured their attention most seems to be hearing him pray. Verse 1 begins, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. They wanted to know how to talk to the Heavenly Father as Jesus did. Having seen and heard Jesus pray many, many times, they knew of his love for prayer. They knew that his prayers were unlike any others they had ever heard. And so that was their request, Lord, teach us to pray. And I want you to notice today how Jesus responded to them. First, he responds with what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer, teaching them what to pray for. And then he gives them the encouragement to be persistent in prayer. But let's begin with the Lord's Prayer, Christ's plan for prayer in verses 1 to 4. These first four verses sort of lay out a plan to help us pray in a way that is pleasing to our Heavenly Father. It's more than a prayer that's to be repeated. In many ways, this is a model prayer or sort of a template uh, for our prayers today. And while it's not wrong, I don't think it's wrong to recite this prayer at all, it's I think much more important to understand the principles that we see here. So I'm going to begin by reading it for us now. Listen as I read verses 1 to 4. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, 
Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Pray with me, please. So, Father, as we read these words, in a similar way we would pray today, Lord, teach us to pray too. Help us in these next few moments by your Holy Spirit to glimpse in a greater way this gift of prayer. Deliver us, Lord, from monotonous spiritual motion, from praying as though it were duty. Lord, help us to experience prayer with you as delight. Help us to enjoy you more in our prayer and draw closer to you in intimacy. And so, God, I pray that uh, far more than I could ever do by teaching on prayer, that your spirit would uh, impress on our hearts how to pray and how to draw close to you through prayer. And we ask this in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. And so the first thing I want to emphasize is the answer to the question, who do we pray to? Who do we pray to? And of course, the answer is we pray to our Father. That's what Jesus taught his disciples. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. We pray to the Father. See, I told you this would not be too revolutionary, all right? So uh, we're probably more familiar with Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer, which says, Our Father, which art in heaven, okay? There's differences between Matthew and Luke's versions, but they begin the exact same way, Father. Now, that might not seem like a big deal to you, but listen carefully. This is a huge deal, and I don't want you to miss it. Do you know what's interesting is that in the Old Testament, do you know how many times God is referred to as our Father? In his book, A Shepherd Looks at the Lord's Prayer, Philip Keller points out that in all of the pages of the Old Testament, God is referred to as our Father fewer than seven times. And never once are people encouraged to pray to God in the Old Testament as Father. Seven times in the Old Testament. But when we come to the New Testament, in just the first four books alone, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, do you know how many times God is referred to as Father? Not seven times, as in the Old Testament, but more than 70 times in the first four books alone. And what you see when you turn the pages of your Bible to the New Testament, what bursts on the scene is this picture of God as Father in a fresh new way. And why this is important is this. We need to realize that when Christ comes on the scene, he makes access to God, our Father, possible. So non-Christian friends who are here with us today, listen to this. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the very center of the teaching of God's word. Every one of us has sinned against God. We have turned from his ways. And we're sort of like Adam and Eve in the garden. We disobey God and we do our own thing. We've all done that. It looks differently in different lives, but we all sin against God and we go our own way. And as a result, we're separated from God. It puts up a barrier between us and God and there's judgment over our sin. We deserve eternal punishment, the Bible says. But the good news of the Bible is that God loves us. He loves us so much that he sent his son to come into the world and live a perfect life and to die in our place for the forgiveness of our sin. But the good news keeps getting better than that. He not only died for us, but he rose again and he conquered the enemies of sin and death. 
Jesus rose from the dead so that everyone everywhere in the world who turns from their sin and trusts him can be forgiven of their sins and have forgiveness and eternal life, reconciled with God forever. That's the good news. That's the gospel in a nutshell. And because of what Jesus did, we're declared not guilty by a holy, righteous judge. We have the privilege also of calling him Father. It just keeps getting better. Not only did he justify us, but he adopts us as his children so that you and I who rebelled against him as sinners now have the privilege of actually calling him Father. That's amazing. Jackie and I have adopted. Two, two of our children are adopted. That's a story for another day, but I will never forget those two days that we stood before the judge at the courthouse and heard the judge say, it's official, your adoption is approved. She's yours. I mean, what a celebration that was. It brings back such good memories. That was so fun. That was a party. But that's what God did for you and for me. Listen to Ephesians 1. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. How does this happen? How do we actually become adopted by God into his family? Well, John puts it like this. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. So John here says that, that when you believe in Jesus and who he is and you accept him for the forgiveness of your sins, you're declared to be the child of God. You've got, you've be, you receive the right to become children of God. You're adopted as his sons and daughters. Well, we're talking about this word father. And it's a term that implies the intimacy and the love of a personal relationship with God. And I suppose that our impression of that word father depends somewhat on our experiences with our own human fathers. But as John Calvin wrote, and I quote, he said, God is not only a father, but by far the best and kindest of all fathers. The best and kindest of all fathers. So even if you didn't have the most loving human father, you have a heavenly father who is the best and the kindest of all. So it's an awesome thing to be able to begin our prayers with the words, our father. To be able to go to the God who created all of the universe and to call him dad is amazing. And then let's see the kind of things that Jesus taught his disciples to pray about. So this isn't my focus so much today, but I want to briefly kind of walk through them. First, he says, hallowed be your name. So praise your holy name, Father. We must always remember to honor our heavenly Father for who he is, to worship him. And then he says, your kingdom come. Before we bring our own needs and wants to our heavenly Father, we're to orient our lives around his purposes. Your kingdom come. See, we're a people on a mission and we should be mindful and sensitive about the work of God's kingdom first. And then he says, give us each day our daily bread. We should talk to him about our physical needs. We should never hesitate to ask him to provide what we need. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. So just as bread is a basic need of our bodies, 
So forgiveness is our basic need of the souls. Okay? For we have all sinned and all need forgiveness. But Jesus also ties our relationship with God here to our forgiving other people. Notice this. And that means that our forgiving other people is a prerequisite to having fellowship with God. And lead us not into temptation is the final phrase we read. This is a difficult phrase to interpret because James 1 tells us that God doesn't tempt anyone to sin. And so I see this last phrase as an acknowledgement of our weakness and our sinfulness and how much we need God's help. The idea is we need that we, we recognize that we need God to strengthen us and help us overcome temptation. See, it's the attitude that flees temptation rather than seeing just how close to the edge I can, I can get towards sin. See, we all have this tendency to wander away from God. And so we pray this because God desires to help give us victory over temptation. So that's what Jesus taught his disciples to pray for. Pretty simple, really. Jesus doesn't say that uh, we need to pray long, complicated, fancy prayers. And now that we've reviewed what Jesus uh, tells us to pray for, let's look at Christ's parable on prayer. All right, Christ's parable for prayer is verses 5 to 9. And we're going to spend most of our time here because this is where Jesus spends most of his time. Three verses on what to pray for, the rest of this passage on how to be motivated and how to keep praying. I think what that tells us is that Jesus understands our weakness. He understands our tendency to sometimes sort of give up, to, to lose hope when our prayers don't get answered like we'd like them to be. So let me pick it up at verse 9, or verse 5, excuse me. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. What a great story. Let's look at it a little bit. Okay. So picture this. It's first century Palestine. Food not readily available like it is today. No grocery stores like today. No preservatives to keep uh, food from spoiling. No freezers in people's homes. No 24-hour Taco Bells. None of that. Yeah. <laughs> There's a battle for bread, as someone put it, every single day. You bake enough bread for that day, and then you start again the next day, and so on. And so, this guy shows up at his buddy's house, and his friend is all out of bread to feed him. Understand, bread is the staple of the diet in that day. Every meal includes bread, or may have even been bread in totality. And so I don't know what you think of when you think of bread. Uh, sometimes I think of something like this. It probably didn't look like that at all. It was probably more of a flat bread. But bread. It's first century Palestine. He didn't have bread to feed his friend. And at that, in that day, hospitality is super important. So this guy has a dilemma. One option is he can be a poor host. 
and not give his buddy any bread. The second option is he can go out at midnight and, and try to find bread from a friend. So it's either poor host or poor neighbor. And this guy chooses door number two. So he walks to his neighbor, his friend's home, and he's already fast asleep. He's enjoying his dreams. And not just his friend, but his entire family is asleep. And Jewish homes in that day were one-room affairs. And so that meant the whole family is asleep in the same room. Sort of like going camping today where everyone's sleeping in a one-room tent, right? And so it's night. Everybody pulled out their sleeping mats. They're, they're fast asleep. You get the, the first kid down. Mom and the first kid probably get down first. And then the other kids fall asleep. And finally, Dad makes sure everything's secure. And then he falls asleep. And if anyone has to get up and use the bathroom, it disturbs everyone. You, 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 you know the picture, all right? We have a couple of three-year-old grandsons and a one-year-old granddaughter that we're working on plans right now to do some camping. That's how it started. Let's go camping for a couple of nights this summer. And we looked into a KOA and looked at different options and we're like, that's not going to work with these guys. So our grandsons cry for like an hour at night when they go to sleep, especially if they're not in the, at home. And it's not going to work for all of us to be in a cabin at a KOA. That, that's just not going to work, just like that. That's right. So... <laughs> Because kids in bedtime can be very hard, right? With me on this? So everyone is fast asleep, and this knock on the door comes. And this guy's like, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. Now, friend is a great way to start this conversation because he's waking up his neighbor and his entire family at midnight, right? So this friendship thing's on thin ice a little bit at this point. And the guy inside's not too happy, and his kids are beginning to wake up, and maybe one of them's starting to cry, and... He's like, don't bother me. The kids are sleeping. Go away. And I'm sure that he said it as politely as possible, but the friendship is still on the edge right now. And Jesus said this. Look at verse 8. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. On your sermon notes, would you underline or circle that word impudence? That's a great word. I'm guessing you use that word a lot this week, right? Impudence. Anybody use that word this week? Just like, just like the last two services. We don't use that word, but it means boldness. It means shamelessness. Audacity. The guy keeps knocking and he keeps asking for bread until this guy finally gets out of bed and gives him what he needs. So here's the interesting thing about parables. We know that we're usually in the parable someplace, so we're like, I guess I'm the guy that's supposed to be the guy that's knocking at the door, right? But then who's God in the parable? Is he, is he the grumpy guy inside who says, go away, don't bother me? So what's Jesus actually teaching about prayer here? Well, I, I'm sure it's not that Jesus is the grumpy guy that says, go away, that doesn't want to answer our prayers. He's saying, if you want something, if you need something from God... Be like this guy who keeps banging on the door. It's about impudence. Shameless persistence is my paraphrase for it. Some translations use the words annoyingly relentless. You get the idea. Now, a basic principle of interpreting parables is they're given to teach one main point, so don't try to make them walk on all fours. Resist the temptation to compare God to the guy inside the house. The point of the parable is simple. Pray with impudence. 
Jesus says, imagine you're like the guy who has enough nerve to go to his friend's house at midnight and keep knocking until he gets what he needs. Imagine being shamelessly persistent because that's what he says we need. When I think of boldness like this, this kind of impudence, I, I, I think of my wife. So only in the best sense, I understand. Uh, she has this dogged determination at times, and uh, especially when it's something she knows she needs or that God has put on her heart to obtain. So I'm thinking back 43 years right now, and uh, we were dating at that time in Portland, and I was having a hard time making up my mind, is this the right one to marry? So uh, foolish looking back, but that's where I was. And March 8th, is a day to remember. We were sitting in my car in the church parking lot after school that day, and uh, we were talking, and long story short, I broke up with her because I was confused and and, uh, didn't know what to do. And so I broke up with her, and she reaches over, and she takes the keys out of the ignition of my car and puts them behind her to hide them. And she says, someday when we get married, I am never going to let you forget this day. And she hasn't. <laughs> March 8th, we, we talk about it every year. <laughs> Shameless persistence is a good thing. Understand this. Jesus is teaching us that God delights to answer those who are bold enough to be shamelessly persistent. But maybe you're wondering why God is like that. Why does God want us to be persistent in prayer anyway? Well, remember that God's primary goal in our lives, one of them is that we would be transformed into the image of his son. He's changing us to be more like Jesus all the time. And one of the disciplines he uses to bring that about is prayer. I like the way that Bill Hybels simply explains this, summarizes this, why Persistence in prayer is important. He says, sometimes God wants to reveal that our walk is wrong. Our relationship with him is wrong. And and so he tells us to grow. Sometimes God wants to reveal that our request is wrong. And when our request is wrong, God says no. And sometimes God wants to reveal that our timing is wrong. And when our timing is wrong, God says slow or wait. But if we persist in prayer long enough to let God bring about changes in our walk and changes in our request, and when the timing is right, then God will say, go. Yes, it's go time, okay? Again, it's all about what God's doing in our hearts, in our lives, because he wants to grow us and mold us into the image of his son. Prayer is not about changing God and convincing him. It's about changing us. And that brings us to verse 9, which is the conclusion of the parable. And Jesus said, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Those three verbs, ask, seek, and knock, important verbs. They're in the present imperative tense in the Greek, which simply means that's a continuous thing. Keep on doing these things. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Again, the idea is shameless persistence. And so this encouragement to keep knocking raises the question, what what about those times that you keep praying, but God doesn't answer your prayer the way you hope he will? 
Or what if you don't like uh, the fact that God isn't answering your prayer at all or, or it's, it's just not working out? What, what then? And that's what Jesus addresses next. Christ's promise for prayer in verses 10 to 13. Christ's promise for prayer. And here Jesus tells us that God always answers our prayers in the way that is best for us. In the way that's best for us. Look at verse 10. Verse 10. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? And so the illustrations here are effective because they're so ludicrous, right? The point is that that God will respond to our petitions only in kindness. No earthly father would be so cruel as to give a hungry child something that's going to hurt him, right? Something harmful instead of the food that that he needs. For example, he says, if a child asks for some food, there's there's not a father around that's going to give him a snake, right? So don't creep out here. That's a rubber. That's a rubber one. So... (laughs) Can you imagine a a, a loving Heavenly Father doing something like that to His child? Of course not. But sometimes we look at how God's answering our prayers and, and we're like, this doesn't seem good to me. Why didn't you answer my prayer? Or why didn't you give me, why'd you give me this instead of what I asked for? And Jesus says we have a loving Father who will do no less for us than a an earthly father would do for his children. He's a good father. And we can trust him to answer our prayers always with kindness and goodness. And then he drives home that principle in verse 13. He says, If you then who are evil or have a sin nature know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Holy Spirit is one of the greatest gifts that we can receive. And all who truly believe in Jesus as Savior receive the Holy Spirit, the moment of salvation. But we also need to grow in our fullness, our experience of Him in our daily walk. And by the way, the reference here to asking for the Spirit is pre-cross. And so the Holy Spirit hadn't been sent yet. So this was a very fitting prayer. The One of the biggest needs we have as God's children is for the Holy Spirit in our lives. Before Pentecost, to receive Him. After Pentecost, to surrender to Him, that He would be in control. And so Jesus says, you have a Father who is a good Father, and He wants to meet your needs. And you can be assured that He is always going to give you what is best for you. So we're going to transition in a major way now to talk about our church's practice for prayer. Because we're in this special season of prayer as we head into Easter. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about these next couple of weeks in our prayer as a church. There's so much that we could say, but I want to summarize it with a few statements here. Number one is the emphasis of the New Testament is on corporate prayer. And corporate prayer simply means praying together with others. The early church began with a 10-day prayer meeting in Jerusalem. And in the book of Acts, throughout it, we see how often the early church gathered to pray. Acts 2.42 summarizes the early church. They were devoted to prayer and other things. They met in each other's homes for prayer. 
By the time we get to Acts 12, we see persecution rising up against the church. Peter's arrested for preaching the gospel. He's put into prison. So how does the church respond? Look at verse 5. Acts 12.5 says, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Corporate prayer was the culture of the early church. But then God delivered Peter from prison, and he goes to tell the church that, that he's been set free. And he, listen to, to verse 12. When he realized this, that he was actually set free, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Again, the, the culture of the early church was corporate prayer. Corporate prayer. It was important to them, and it should be to us as well. Number two is small groups are a key aspect of our strategy to pray for people. Because we're a group, a church of small groups and a church that values prayer highly, we have purposed that all of our small groups would keep prayer as a priority. And I want to thank our small group leaders for doing exactly that, for keeping prayer on the front burner. It pays great dividends, but it requires constant work and effort. Special thanks to the uh, small groups who are coming to the concert of prayer together today or coming to one of the evenings of prayer this week. That's a great thing. Some of our groups do that every year. So small groups, is a, they are another key aspect of our outreach strategy as a church. And that brings us to number three. Christmas and Easter prayer events are also key. So our Easter concert of prayer is today at 1245. Okay, we're going to meet in the gym. We have a catered lunch lined up for you. And then we're going to pray together for our upcoming outreach events over the next couple of weeks. It's for all ages. The, concert, the lunch and the concert of prayer is for all ages. We do provide child care for younger children, however. And then the prayer time is going to be divided into three brief segments of prayer. We're going to just put up prayer points up on the screen and pray, and pray together for them. It's such a, an encouraging time every time we do that. I just want to say this, if you're not comfortable praying out loud in that context, please come anyway, because many people come and don't pray out loud. You don't have to pray out loud. You can pray silently along with us. Again, we'll start at 1245. You're going to have time for lunch. We're going to pray, and we'll have you on your way about 2 o'clock. We keep it fun. We keep it moving along. If you've never been to a concert of prayer, I want to strongly encourage you to check it out today. It'll be a blast. And then we're going to have five more hours of corporate prayer, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Monday at 10 a.m., 7 p.m., Tuesday, 10 a.m., 7 p.m., Wednesday, 10 a.m. And it's in the friendship room, which is the room right below us, okay? We, we gather for cookies and hot drinks. We spend some time praying together. We have some fellowship, and we, and we head out. And one of the things we do is we pray for the, the uh, invest and invite cards, the people. We pray for you and for the people that you write down on on your cards that I'm going to explain about in just a minute. So here's number four. Investing in the lives of the people God places in your life is also super important. Okay? So here's a few other suggestions to help us share our faith. Sort of think of it as a five-step plan for telling others about Christ, right? Now, here's step one. Make a prayer list and pray daily for your friends. So every year at Easter, we pass out some kind of cards like this. I call them invest and invite cards. And uh, if you haven't passed them down the aisle already, these should be in the pocket of the chair right in front of you if you're sitting on the aisle. Or maybe they're on the chair. Some of them are on chairs. And if you filled these out two weeks ago, you don't need to do it again. 
Uh, we know not everyone comes every week, so we're giving you another chance in case you weren't here two weeks ago. So here's, what, here's how we're going to do it. Two cards, you're going to write your name at the bottom of each card and the same names of people you're praying for on both cards. Here's what it says. These are the people God has placed in my life who need to know and follow Christ. I will pray for them daily and invite them to attend an Easter service with me. So same names on both cards. The big one goes in the offering bag at the end of the service. The little one goes home with you. Please put it someplace that's visible and will be a reminder for you to pray daily for these friends for the next two weeks. So make a prayer list and pray daily. That's the first step. It's super important. Here's step two. Work hard at becoming a genuine friend. Praying is just part of the process. We also need to be intentional about developing genuine friendships with people. I'm saying just do things that you normally do and invite others to do them with you. The point is invest in a friendship. Step three is meet a practical need in people's lives. And it's not too complicated because when you start praying for someone, I believe that God has a way of showing you ways that you can serve them bringing needs to the forefront. So whatever you notice they need and whatever God puts on your heart, consider that a prompting from God and ask if you can help. That's number three. Step four is to offer to pray for a pressing need in their life. Offer to pray for them. Listen, most people appreciate an offer like that. Almost everyone is willing to have people pray for them. Almost everyone wants God's help, especially when they're in pain. So offer to pray for other people, and then, of course, be sure to follow through in prayer. And then finally, step number five, share the gospel with them or invite them to church with you. So Easter's only two weeks away. It's going to be a fantastic season of outreach, both that weekend, but also the events leading up to that again this year. Encourage you to use the Easter invite cards. If you haven't picked them up already, grab a pack on the way out and pass them out. Uh, but I, some of you have friends or you have family members or people your heart is burdened for that can't come or won't come. So there are other ways to share your faith as well, obviously. So you can meet with them. You can call them up. You can send them something in the mail. You can email them. I had the, the funnest conversation just a couple of weeks ago with one of the gals here from church who moved to Patriots Landing down in DuPont. It's the very same retirement home my mom is at. And I saw Mary a couple of weeks ago, and she was on cloud nine. And so I went over to her table and talked to her for a little bit. And she, she was so excited because this new gentleman moved into the uh, Patriots Landing, and he had, began asking her all these questions about the Lord and about spiritual things. And she was just so excited because she had answered his questions and began uh, helping him with the things he asked about. And finally, he said, would you show me how to become a Christian? And she led him in the prayer to receive Christ as a Savior. And she was just thrilled with that. So sometimes it's just being ready and willing to talk to someone when they have questions. There was really no greater privilege we have in this life than leading someone else to Christ and telling them about our faith. So let's talk about some applications, some next steps. We're in this in the middle of the season of prayer as a church family, and I want to encourage you to do just that. Set aside some extra time to seek God as your Heavenly Father and to draw close to Him in prayer and to meet with the rest of your church family for some corporate prayer as well. 
So let's talk about some next steps. There's four of them on your notes there. Number one is I will pray daily for those on my prayer list. That's our main application today. Make a prayer list and pray daily for those people over the next two weeks. So I'm asking you to simply formalize that commitment by marking box number one. I'm willing to do that. Next step number two is I will attend the lunch, the concert of prayer today. 12.45 in the gym. One of the highlights of our church year here at Lake City. Again, if you've never been, please check it out today. Next step three, I will attend at least one hour of prayer over the next three days. So five hours, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Please come to at least one of those hours. It's a very special time for us as a church family as well. You'll be blessed if you do. And next step four, I will invest and invite three people this Easter. I've been talking about inviting and investing in people's lives, so this is just kind of firming up that decision, that commitment. Be intentional to follow through is what I'm encouraging you to do, and you can mark the box if you're willing to do that, to pray that God would give you the chance to invest in and invite three people. One more that's not on your sermon notes. If, friend, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior yet, listen, God wants you to be saved. God wants you to have the assurance your sins are forgiven, and if you die today or if he comes back today, you're going to heaven. God loves you so much that he sent Jesus Christ to make that possible. But listen, it's not enough just to know that intellectually. To be saved, to have that forgiveness personally, means that you've also made the heart decision to say yes. Yes, I want that. I receive that. And I want to give you a prayer in just a moment to receive that gift God is offering to you. So let's bow together and let's pray. So, dear Father, thank you so much, Father, for just the privilege of calling you that. Thank you for adopting us as your children, for making the way for us to be redeemed and to be forgiven and part of your family through the Lord Jesus Christ. And our prayer today, Father, is that you will be glorified in our lives and in our church. We pray that your kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray to, I pray today for my brothers and sisters here in this room that, that we will experience the wonder of prayer and greater intimacy in prayer with you than ever before. Father, we thank you for your grace and your forgiveness in our lives. And we pray you would help us as we strive to make Jesus Christ known to our neighbors and friends. And I pray today for our unbelieving friends who are with us here today that you would draw them to yourself as your children. May they turn from their sins and experience the joy of your salvation and forgiveness. And friend, if that's you, if you're not sure your sins are forgiven, I invite you to pray this prayer with me right now. Just silently in your heart of hearts, if you're ready, pray something like this. Father, I want your forgiveness. I confess that I have sinned against you. And I admit that I can't earn forgiveness by the things that I do, but I receive forgiveness today by putting my faith in Jesus Christ. I believe his death and resurrection paid for my sin, and I receive that gift of forgiveness today. Father, thank you for this privilege of prayer. May we ever grow in it until the day that we see you face to face. And we pray these things today in Jesus' precious name. Amen.